2: When we think of the most eminent 17th century Dutch artists, the names Rembrandt and Vermeer quickly spring to mind. But another extraordinary portrait artist who was their contemporary and also one of the greatest masters of the Dutch Golden Age is our subject today, Frans Hals. His most famous painting is The Laughing Cavalier of 1624. I'm delighted to let Dr Xavier Bray of the Wallace Collection and the artist and broadcaster Grayson Perry remind you of this wonderful picture and tell you what they think we should make of it.
1: Here we are in front of the Laughing Cavalier. It's pride of place in the exhibition gallery. What's your personal relationship with this picture? Well, it's one of the first paintings I ever saw in my life because my mother, I think, sort of collected coupons like on the soap powder or something like that and she had a print of it hanging in our house one of the few pictures we had in our council house it was sort of presented to me as this sort of mythic artwork I remember the title and I just sort of took it on face value but he, of course he isn't laughing he's kind of smirking he's really a bit of a smirking Lothario I kind of <laughs> see him as really and I suppose cavalier because he's on the side of sensuality and decadence That's what I would say. Mm. He's a bit of a bon viveur, isn't he, really? When you look at him, you think he's definitely had a few beer stroke casks of wine, you know, in those rosy cheeks. We do have his age. He's 26 at the time. Is he a rake or is he about to get married? What could you tell us, from not only the posture, but also the clothes? Do you think one can bring a narrative to such a portrait? If you ask me to guess, I would say he definitely wasn't married. Because he he's, he's got his show-off clothes on. these sort of heavily embroidered, sort of doublet, his lace, cuffs and collar, you know, and he's got his jaunty hat on. He's out with the lads probably tonight. He's got his sword there. And so, you know, he strikes me as someone who goes off on a sort of swaggering booze-up.
2: That little clip came from the fabulous audio guide, and I say that as someone who normally doesn't like audio guides, but this one is special. From the new exhibition at the Wallace Collection that focuses on Harl's male portraits, which have been gathered from galleries all over the world to be displayed together for the first time. I went along to the Wallace Collection to have a look for myself and to meet the curator, Dr. Lelia Packer. Thank you so much for joining me to talk about this wonderful exhibition. It really gives a lovely sense of how's work. Let's introduce Frans Hals. Who was he? When did he live and where? Thank you so much for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Frans Hals is really
3: one of the three greats in Dutch art history, if you will, in the Dutch Golden Age, Rembrandt, Vermeer and Frans Hals. But unlike Rembrandt, he doesn't seem to have that same sort of status. There's about 10 exhibitions on Rembrandt every year, and there hadn't been one in this country on Frans Hals since 1990. So we thought it was long overdue to examine him here in this country and really showcase him as a major player in the Dutch Golden Age.
2: So what were his
3: dates? We don't know the exact year of his birth. He was born either in 1582 or 1583, in Antwerp, his family was Flemish. And there was an exodus around the fall of Antwerp in 1585. Many Flemish migrants, including artists, merchants, all sorts of tradesmen moving up due to religious persecution up north to what ultimately became the Dutch Republic. So Frans Hals's family moved from Antwerp to Harlem, a short distance away from Amsterdam, when he was about three years old, around 1586 and Franz Haas lives in the city of Harlem for his entire life, and he lives well into his 80s, so he dies in 1666. His patrons are mainly the elite of Harlem, although he does move beyond the city. We know he went back to his home city of Antwerp once in 1616, but that is the only international trip that we know that he took, and when he would have gone back to Antwerp, he would have seen major portraitists like Rubens, the teenage Van Dyck, and then he would have seen... Jacob Jordan, those would have been the three main artists, although, as I say, Van Dijk would have still been quite young. You know, you can see the influence of those Flemish masters, I think, in his portraits.
2: And you've curated this exhibition of male portraits. And it's fascinating in so many ways in terms of giving us an encounter with these patrons of Harlem. One of the things that's really striking is just how immediate the portraits feel, how we feel like we're in the presence of these people. How did he achieve that?
3: It's a really good question. Actually, a contemporary poet in Harlem wrote about how Franz Hall's paintings seem to live and breathe. Even at the time, contemporaries commented that there's something different about his portraits, that they're quite lifelike, unlike you know, his predecessors, which may have been a bit more static in the type of portraits that they would have painted. And what we tried to show, and particularly we think with the male portraits, he takes more liberties and breaks more with convention than, say, with his female sitters. I know it sounds kind of schematic, but it is actually true, I think and he enlivens them more, his male sitters, he makes them feel more lifelike. The poses are a bit more informal, whereas the portraits of women tend to be a bit more stiff and less about capturing an instant, which is something that we see he does try to do in the male portraits.
2: And in the pictures that you've got in this exhibition, we're spanning five decades. Did his technique change over that time?
3: It's wonderful because just focusing on the male portraits, we are able to trace his evolution as an artist. And by the way, we decided to focus on the male portraits because the picture in our collection is the Laughing Cavalier and he is a portrait of a man. And we wanted to really contextualize him for the first time. He's been in this collection since 1865 and he's never been seen alongside other portraits by Franz Hals. So we thought, what better way now that the Wallace Collection is able to lend and borrow works of art? We wanted to showcase our most famous painting, our Laughing Cavalier, alongside works like it and really put it in context. So we decided to put on this exhibition with portraits of men that span Franz Hals's entire career from 1610 to 1666, and we have portraits from throughout his life, and we see that Although you can't say for sure, okay, he does this in the 20s because his technique does change depending on who he's painting. So he does alter his technique based on the sitter, Somebody's more conservative leanings. Maybe he has a tighter painting style, somebody he's more friendly with. We know some of the sitters were his friends. He seems to take more liberties. But I'd say overall, his brushstroke and his sort of factor gets broader over time. So that by the end, you really see why the Impressionists really considered Franz Hals their precursor, because you really feel those brushstrokes on these late pictures. You can trace almost the way in which he lays them down. He puts the paint down with unblended strokes of paint. That means he's not blending the paint on the palette, but he's doing that directly on the canvas support. I mean, those are really modern ways of approaching painting. And so the Impressionists really loved that about Franz Hals. And we're all going to see Frans Hals in the 1860s. The Frans Hals Museum had just opened. It was called the Municipal Museum at the time in 1862. And young French artists in particular from Paris were being encouraged to go and see Franz Hals to really learn how to paint.
2: That's really fascinating. And I was really struck by the fact that it almost seems that you can see these different techniques of brushstroke In the same picture, I mean, talking of The Laughing Cavalier, some parts are very finely detailed and some parts are done as if it's been done in a rush or with this unblended approach that gives us immediacy, and it's amazing to see them in one picture.
3: Yes, you can really see his range, I think, as you say, in the Laughing Cavalier even, which is one of the portraits that's very controlled in the way that he paints. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he goes to it, and we actually don't see very much of the brushstrokes in that picture, but there are details, like there's this upturned cuff brown cuff that is much more sort of fluidly painted if you will than say the lace cuff which is below which is very intricately and very controlled way of painting so he has a broad range and so he is able to adapt it as I say depending on who he's painting and depending on what detail he's painting.
2: Let's talk about the laughing cavalier, which I was amused to note. Your painting labels say is neither laughing nor a cavalier. Yeah. But let's describe it for people who can't immediately bring it to mind. What does it look like?
3: Yeah. He's very proud of who he is. He's wearing the most exuberant doublet and he's wearing the latest French fashion straight from Paris in the 1620s. So he's someone that's very astute to the latest trends. His doublet is newly slashed in the sleeves, which is something that was newly introduced in the 1620s. The picture is painted in 1624, so he's really right on target. And he is shown at 26 years old, we know from the inscription. So he's a young man, probably a bachelor, because he's wearing this very flamboyant dress that wouldn't have been appropriate for a married man at the time. He's wearing a flattened white linen collar, and that was also new in the 1620s. Prior to that, you would have had those stiffly starched ruffs that continued to exist. But if you were highly fashionable and wanted to wear the latest style, you'd wear a flatter collar, which is what he's wearing. He also is letting his hair grow a bit, and that's something that men start to tend to do in the 17th century. So it's not long, long, but it's sort of down to his neck. You know, his curls are spilling out of his hat. And that's, again, something that shows he's very fashionable. As the century goes on, men start letting their hair grow longer and longer, such that by the middle of the 17th century, and we have portraits that show that men have hair down below their shoulder, and uh, it becomes a whole controversy known as the dispute of the locks that some church fathers think it gets to be quite inappropriate. He has the most sumptuous gilded rapier that he carries in the crook of his elbow, and that would have been very rare very expensive. And again, it was a status symbol. He's showing off his wealth. And then what makes this painting an icon? Why is it called the Dutch Mona Lisa? And another thing that contributes to that, I think, is the intricacy of this embroidered doublet that he's wearing, which is really unusual for the time. There's little, very deliberate signs and symbols that are represented on it that don't appear anywhere else in Dutch portraits, don't exist in extant costumes, or inventories that we know of, and maybe the only equivalent would have been in Elizabethan dress, the kind of really intricate embroidery. But all of these little signs and symbols on his doublet are taken from contemporary emblem books. I mean, the whole thing is a very refined, rather complex program of iconography. Everything that is associated with love, virtue, strength, and fortune. These are all things he's aspiring to be. Anyhow, it's a very complex picture and I can go on and on about it. But as you can see, there's all of these different components that make it really special. And it's really confidently painted in addition to everything else. We took our first X ray and infrared of the picture in preparation for this exhibition and we didn't find anything. (laughs) And that you might say, oh, wow, what does that mean? But to us, what that means is that we didn't find any changes. He didn't move a hand or he didn't move the ear over or the nose, none of that. So that tells us that it's very confidently painted, that he knew what he was doing from the start. And there are no drawings by Franz Hals that exist at all. That's not to say he didn't draw, they just haven't survived. That makes this painting even more sort of virtuosic in its execution.
2: From my point of view as a writer, it's like writing a book and not going back and editing anything. Exactly,
3: exactly. And, you know, he would have had to let the layers dry because, of course, he's working in oil paint. We can tell that there's layer upon layer that he worked in this way. Some paintings are done a la prima, which means all in one go. And we have portraits like that in the exhibition. But this one, we can tell it was methodical and he went layer by layer by layer. But he knew exactly what he was doing. And we can tell that for the Laughing Cavalier, and this is true of other pictures, he does a painted underdrawing. Sometimes artists will do an underdrawing in chalk or a different medium, but here he's working just in the paint medium, sketchy underdrawing. So he would have laid in the composition to know where to, the sort of basic schematic sketch in paint, which would have been done in brown paint fluid, almost like watercolor. And then he would have started applying the paint on top of that.
2: Now, one thing you didn't mention, but the thing that, perhaps stands out to me the most from yeah. the Laughing Cavalier is his moustache.
3: Oh yes, yes.
2: And I'm sure this is why it's been called laughing, because yes. the moustache yes. is facing upwards. Completely. It's the moustache that's laughing, not the, <laughs> not his mouth. It's, it's a sort of
3: smirk on his lips. But then it's the moustache that gives us the sense of laughter. And actually, I've been thinking a lot about this moustache. It was more common in Flanders, in the southern Netherlands. In portraits, we find these upturned moustaches. Less so in the Dutch Republic. So we think maybe, then for other reasons, he may have been Flemish or had Flemish origins. Moreover, these kinds of moustaches would have taken quite a bit of grooming to <laughs> sort of maintain. And in addition to his very clean-shaven look, but then he has this perfect moustache that's upturned so that he would have had to do that with wax, you know, and then the little goatee. All of that is another indication of his wealth and status to maintain this kind of grooming.
2: Mm. And we really have something going on in this exhibition about hair, don't we? We've yeah. got Hair growing out, elaborate moustaches. I mean, yeah. the sort of way that masculinity is being figured in the exhibition is really interesting. What do you think we can learn from it about 17th century Dutch ideals of manhood?
3: It's an interesting question, and actually on our multimedia guide, which accompanies the exhibition and is free with entry, we have several different voices on the guide that bring the portraits to life from experts from different disciplines. But one person who really brings them to life and has thought a great deal about masculinity is contemporary artist Grayson Perry, who gives his take on manhood when he looks at these portraits.
1: I've always been interested in gender and the idea of what it is to be a man because I'm a transvestite. The idea of masculinity is a set of habits, sort of social conditioning that men do very well. You know, they play the role of a man in whatever era they are born. And I think what's interesting about this exhibition, it's an insight into what it was to be a man in houses day. There are some sort of universals that are still the same, you know, 400 years ago. Which, you know, are your pose, your expression, the fact that these guys, they were much closer to an era where the masculine values of sort of violence, self-sufficiency, aggressiveness, being kind of dominant, were much more evident in everyday life. Nowadays, a lot of those qualities, dare I say, are redundant. So when I sort of look at these, I'm sort of trying perhaps to sort of see the same range of characters that we might see nowadays. You look into someone's eyes, you know, and we as human beings are amazingly attuned because we have spent a lifetime in looking into each other's eyes. And the slightest flicker and imbalance and the transient expressions, you know, we are all experts in it pretty much.
3: From my point of view, I think, you know, the men of that time period were more interested in fashion than we might think. And obviously appearance and how you portray yourself was very important and it was a way of really creating and manipulating your identity. And these portraits, there's nothing accidental about them. Everything is very carefully, I think, considered. Despite the paint looking as if it's fluid and quickly painted, I think it's very methodical and well thought out.
4: Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say. Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names.
3: It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction.
4: We've got the big topics.
3: The man destroys
4: seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to The Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word.
1: and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
2: What can we learn about some of the other individuals that you have depicted here? Probably my favourite
3: pair, and I think they go very well with our laughing cavalier. there at the other end of the room because they're painted later. We move sort of roughly chronologically, but there's a pair of two bachelors, probably the most eligible bachelors in the Dutch Republic, in 1645. Both portraits are painted, by coincidence, in 1645, and both sitters are 22 years old when they're painted. And one of them is Jasper Schade, who was an aristocrat from Utrecht, which shows us that Franz Hals painted not just Harlem elite, but went beyond the city. And that portrait comes to us from the National Gallery in Prague. It's one of their highlights there. It's a fantastic portrait. And opposite Jasper Schade is William Koimans, who is from a very wealthy banking family. And Franz Hals painted several members of the Koimans family. And that portrait comes to us from Washington, from the National Gallery of Art there. So we have them juxtaposed in the exhibition, literally facing one another, encountering one another, conversing. I mean, it'd be interesting to hear what they're talking about. And they are just wearing the most flamboyant costumes. You know, William has a pom-pom on his hat. I mean, they are clearly very fashion conscious. (laughs) And in the case of Jasper Schadeh, We know that he spent a great deal on his clothes. That year, 1645, we have a letter that tells us that he spent 300 francs on a single item of clothing in Paris, which at that time would have been a very large amount of money to spend on clothing. So they're wonderful characters that I hope by hanging them opposite in a kind of rhythmic way, going down the space in our exhibition gallery, they kind of encounter us but encounter each other as well.
2: I mean, they're an amazing pair. We also have quite a few deeply serious professions represented here. What sort of range of people and different ranks are represented here? So we have quite a few brewers and textile merchants. (laughs) So
3: brewing and textile were the major commercial industries in the city of Harlem, and the wealthiest were involved in those industries. So we have a wonderful portrait of a man called Nicholas van Forhout. He actually hangs to the left of our Laughing Cavalier, wearing the most sumptuous silk doublet, beautiful. And he was a brewer from a brewing family. He inherited a brewery called the Swan's Neck. And you can sort of tell he sampled his own product in just the way (laughs) he appears. And, you know, opposite him we have Isaac Massa, who was a merchant, a textile merchant, very well-traveled. And it's a range. And some were burgermasters, some were mayors of the city of Harlem, some had official positions. It really varies, but I think we tried to have a kind of range in the exhibition. And each and every single portrait, although we only had 13, was very carefully selected to make a particular point. Whether it's about that time period, whether it's about Franz Hall's technique, whatever
2: it might be, but they were very carefully selected. Muss is a very interesting one because it's such an informal picture, such an informal portrait. What makes it so sort of nonchalant? He's fantastic. This is a portrait of the merchant Isaac Mas, as I
3: say, who was actually a friend of Franz Hals's, and we know that because he was witnessing the baptism of one of his daughters. Franz Hals had 12 children, <laughs> so there would have been a lot of baptisms. They were friends, it seems, because Franz Hals paints three other portraits of Massa and all of these portraits are rather informal or he takes liberties in the kind of conventional ways you'd expect a portrait to be and in this one from Ontario the man is seated with his arm over the back of the chair turning to look out towards us. Now this is something that is very unusual in independent individual portraits of this period. In fact it's the first one I know of of that type of posing composition. You would find that pose in group portraits, where a group of men would have been seated around the table, and the men in the front of the table would have to turn so that they could have their portraits captured by the artist, but never in an independent portrait. And for me, that gives this portrait of Isaac Massa a great deal of informality. It makes it seem as though he's just turned to look at us. You know, and these are the kinds of strategies that I think Franz Hals employs in his portraits of men that make them different, that bring them to life, that really inject them with a kind of vitality that is new for this time.
2: And there's something also, I suppose, about how each man is placed on the canvas that seems important. So what sort of message being conveyed by that? Yes,
3: absolutely. Actually, the earliest portrait that we have, the one from 1610, of a man holding a skull, he's placed quite high up, he's painted on panel, and he's quite high up and sort of occupying the entire space and then as time goes on they come down a bit (laughs) and it might have to do with them coming down to our level a bit more and really engaging us you know they're all life-size more or less they feel very lifelike because of that and then another way in which they seem to spill out into our space is the pose so often what Frontals does is he uses the arm akimbo pose that's hand on hip and generally it's the right hand because many of these men would have had pendant wives who would have been on the left side, if you will, hanging on the man's left or sinister side. So the right arm would have been the one that could turn in, if you will. But our Laughing Cavalier has his left arm akimbo, which makes us think that he actually was destined from the start as an independent portrait, because he's not conceived together with a pendant, if you will. So what I'm trying to say with this... Armakimbo, or what becomes known as the renaissance elbow pose is that is a device that allows these sitters to spill out. Really it's this kind of heightened foreshortening where the bits of the figure are literally spilling out into our space. <laughs> in this case it's the elbow. Sometimes it's other things like for example we have one man painted in the 1650s. He comes to us from the Metropolitan Museum and he's holding his hat in front of him and the hat seems to be poking out into our space.
2: Talking of hats, Mm. what's the meaning of the hats, on or off? It feels like Uh, they're deliberately used.
3: Yes, I mean, certainly how their position in the portrait must have been a discussion between artist and patron. But it was a symbol of masculinity in the Dutch 17th century. A standard accessory you'd take with you as a man leading the house. Hat, gloves and cloak, which at that time was not just for superheroes, but actually it was a standard (laughs) part of male dress. And in the portraits, we find sometimes they're wearing their hats, upturned often, so we can see the face. Apparently, despite the 1660s, the latest portrait, there was an entire hat mania in the Republic at that time where the hats were getting bigger and bigger and bigger. To the extent that our latest portrait, which comes to us from the Fitzwilliam, a man is wearing another large hat, placed askew, and in the 18th century, the owner of that portrait must have thought it was just too much, and he had it painted out. And then when the portrait was acquired by the Fitzwilliam and they went to clean it in around 1950, they discovered there was a hat under there and they restored it and put it back. So some of them have been wearing and not wearing their hats in the actual portraits in front of us, if you will. But uh, yeah, there's a whole hat mania. Franz Hals really employs it as a prop to use it for engaging us.
2: When I was going around, I was also struck by the fact that the other thing that really engages us is that every single one, correct me if I'm wrong, but from my memory, every single one of the men looks out at the spectator. There aren't portraits where they're looking off. That seems very striking. Yes, yes, they're looking at
3: us, we're looking back at them, they're certainly, we are conversing with them visually, if you will.
2: And I'm also really struck by all the blacks. We must talk about the <laughs> yes. use of colour because he manages to paint black, but it has such variety. Tell me about how that's yeah. achieved.
3: Absolutely. Van Gogh very famously wrote to his brother in a letter that Franz Hals must have had 27 blacks. <laughs> so his black is not just black. It's many, many shades of black. And artists themselves were commenting on that and really admiring Franz Hals for his ability to paint black. Now, black would have been the standard male chic color, as it still is today. So if you were married, you were expected to wear black, man or woman. And so many of them are wearing black. The ones that aren't were probably, at least in our exhibition, bachelors, including our Laughing Cavalier and the two men I mentioned, Jasper Schade and William Koymans. There is one man who is wearing that satin gray doublet, and he was married. So, you know, there are exceptions, but as a rule, if you will. So Franz Haas, he has a lot of canvas space to accommodate these black outfits. So he has to really enliven it somehow with the folds and the ways in which he paints the folds to really give us an understanding of the way the fabric you know, is positioned. I think all of that speaks to his virtuosity as a painter in the way that he manipulates these blacks.
2: I thought it was very important that one of the pictures that you have Pieter van der Brocker in your mm. audio guide, you think about his role in the Dutch East India Company and what we know about his involvement with the slave trade. Yeah. And there seems such a contrast between what we know of his activities and the picture. Can you tell us a bit about him and what we know?
3: He is the man that we probably know most about. As I say, some of them, we don't even know who they are. And there's quite a bit of information on him. But the portrait of Peter von den Brucke that Franz Hals paints in the early 1630s, he looks like a jolly fellow. He's got these flushed cheeks, his hair is unkept. So he looks rather happy, if you will. But there are more serious parts to his story. So it was recently discovered that he was involved in the early years of the Dutch slave trade. The Dutch were debating at the beginning whether or not to even take part in the slave trade. Of course, ultimately, they decided to. But Peter von Brucke is in these early, early years. And we know that he had children by two enslaved women from India. He traveled very widely to India and Africa. And we know that two of his children were by enslaved women that he subsequently freed. He then had a, a third child by a free Turkish woman. We know that sort of about 20 years before this portrait was painted. And around 1610, he goes to Cape Verde off the western coast of Africa. And there he writes in his diary about how people are offering him their children for food or money. And that he actually ends up buying a little girl of 10 years old for 61 kilos of rice. Wow. And he writes in the diary how he's actually surprised that the mother isn't more moved when she hands him over. The child and that after that many more come up to him and offer him their children. I mean it's a chilling story that just gives you goosebumps and I think there's probably more of these stories that we just don't know that we could tell about the sitters in this exhibition even but when we do know these stories it's our obligation to share them.
2: Yes, it contextualizes what we can see very importantly, where that wealth is coming from.
3: (laughs) Well, yes, exactly. And, you know, he traveled by, as I say, with the Dutch East India Company. He's wearing a gold chain, which was a present given to him by the Dutch East India Company after 17 years of service. And that chain would have been worth 1,200 guilders at the time, which was four times the yearly wage of a skilled craftsman like a carpenter or something. So just the chain was (laughs) four years of labor and he's showing it off.
2: And you've mentioned that he becomes very fashionable again 200 years later. But he seems to have fallen into obscurity for some time after his death. Why do you think that was the case? In the case of Franz
3: Hals, there were two things I think that contributed to him going into obscurity for about two centuries. One is that... His work was criticized for appearing unfinished. So even artists like Reynolds, it's not good enough, it's unfinished. <laughs> and then his character was attacked. He had 12 children, massive families, so he had financial troubles throughout his life. He died a poor man. And then in the 1620s and 1630s, he also paints genre paintings, although he's mostly a portraitist. He does paint these jolly genre figures, life-size, many of which are drinking and that sort of thing. And I think his paintings have contributed to him being thought to have been this kind of dissolute character who was drunk a lot. And There's a later biographer in the early 18th century, Arnold Haubracken, who writes this biography of Franz Hals, which many of these biographies were fictionalized to some degree. And in that biography, he writes about how he's always at the pub, essentially. <laughs> That's where you go if you need to find him.
2: But as you said, the Impressionists became fascinated by him. And I suppose that's where we see his legacy. Why do you think that people should know about him today? I think it's the Impressionists, but also I think
3: the sale of our painting in 1865 really contributed to his renaissance, if you will. I mean, he was virtually fetching very, very low prices until that point. And then the Fourth Marquess of Hartford, who was one of the main founders of the Walls Collection... He was an incredible connoisseur and only had the greatest buying power in Europe at the time. And he was only buying the best of the best. And he didn't have a Franz Hals until this point. And then there was this major sale in Paris in 1865, the Portal Gorgier collection. And there it was written that there was a Franz Hals. Nothing, wasn't one of these pictures that you had to have. But he clearly saw it and thought it was special. And it turns out that he bid against it together with Baron James the Rothschild and Charles Eastlake, who was then director of the National Gallery. So there's three-way bidding. And ultimately, the fourth won, paying six times the estimate of the picture. So it had been listed for 8,000 francs, and he pays 51,000 francs. And this was a big, big deal in contemporary press at the time. And I think it really contributed to his success. And in addition to that, you had these artists in Paris going to Harlem, all kind of coming together at that moment, that really contributed to his coming back into fashion. But I think, you know, today, what we can learn from him, I think these figures are very human. You know, we can relate to them. They seem very lifelike. We encounter them and we can sort of maybe see ourselves in them. (laughs) Particularly, for example, the earliest man, he's holding a skull. He clearly has death on his mind. And, you know, preparing this exhibition during COVID times, we have similar concerns today.
2: Well, thank you so much for making the time to talk to me about these wonderful pictures and to introduce this artist. I think many people might not have heard of him, which seems extraordinary. Thank you for taking Mm -hmm. the time. Now, thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor, and not just the Tudor, love.
4: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.